Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese, and I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is William Talbot. William is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of Washington in Seattle. His research is centrally in epistemology, though he also does work in ethics, political philosophy, and the philosophy of law, which includes philosophical questions about human rights. Now, his new book has just been published with Oxford University Press. It's titled Learning from Our Mistakes, Epistemology for the Real World. The enterprise of Western epistemology has largely been devoted to a collection of issues concerning the definition and analysis of knowledge. What makes knowledge different from true belief? When is one's evidence or justification for one's belief sufficient for knowledge? Under what conditions must we revise our beliefs? And what methods or processes should we rely on when we're forming beliefs? Now, these endeavors typically aspire to defeat or placate skepticism. And as I suspect many listeners will know, they often fall flat. In response, contemporary epistemologists have developed different ways of recasting the epistemological enterprise. But many of these provoke new versions of the same old difficulties. Now, in learning from our mistakes, William Talbot proposes a more radical shift in our approach to epistemology. To put it in a nutshell, Talbot proposes that we abandon the thought that rational belief should be modeled on a successful proof. Instead, he thinks, we should conceptualize rational belief on the model of a good learner. Now, as usual, there are lots of interesting philosophical questions afoot. But before we get into them, why don't we begin, as we normally do, with our guest. Hello, Bill. Hi, Bob. Thank you for that introduction. (laughs) No problem. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thanks. I'm glad to hear that. Well, as I just mentioned, you know, we often begin with the author. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I... uh... Uh, I came from a family, my father was in the military, so we moved around a lot. And one thing that you learn when you move around a lot is how to make friends. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I I made friends over and over and over again. Uh, and I also went to Catholic schools. And I think in Catholic schools, you are typically encouraged to ask what they regard as religious questions, but are often philosophical questions. And so that was the beginning of my uh, the philosophical urge. Um, I I went I was an undergraduate at Princeton, and my primary epistemological training was from Gilbert Harmon, 
And uh, it was really, really fortunate that I had Gil at the beginning because as opposed to most, say, epistemology courses where you're presented, you're just overwhelmed with all these skeptical arguments, Harmon gave a different interpretation to skeptical arguments. It, the, the result, the rational result was not that you don't know anything or that you don't have any rational beliefs. The rational result was if you get to such a crazy conclusion, you need to go back and reconsider because, uh, and this is a little formula that I use often in the book, whenever you have any reasoning or any argument, I guess reasoning would be more general, when you get to the end of it, the final step is to decide what makes the most sense to believe, the conclusion or the to give up one of the premises, accept the conclusion or give up one of the premises, or I might add, uh, or give up the belief that the premises support the conclusion. So with that introduction to epistemology, I was ready to read all of Western epistemology and just find it intriguing, never despairing, because it, it, it was like then a mystery. What assumptions were leading to, in, in the case of the skeptical arguments, such insane results? And, uh, and then I found out also that there are other pretty insane results, even if they're not skeptical. Okay. So, I, so for the listeners, too, you should bear in mind, that's my whole approach. And so today, when I'm talking about my book, I will encourage you to think about things and see where they lead. But always at the end, it's up to you. Each one makes their own judgment about what does it make the most sense to believe? The conclusion of this guy's reasoning or one of the premises, one of the starting points. I want ultimately generate that idea to starting points. Okay. Uh, so then I, I, I was a graduate student at Harvard, and there my advisor was Bob Nozick. And uh, Nozick was an amazing person. And by the way, I should say, I just read recently that Gil Harmon died. So I'm both of my mentors, I feel as though, have now died. And I'm on my own, philosophically. Um, and in graduate school, I discovered that I'm really interested in anything normative. And it actually, I could have gone and done a dissertation uh, in ethics or political philosophy or epistemology. And through my whole life, I've sort of tried to balance going back and forth between the two. And one of the things that I do in this book is to offer a model of inquiry in epistemology, rational belief in epistemology. But as I say in a footnote, actually the same model works in any normative area. It works for uh, non-moral practical rationality, and it works for morality, political philosophy that is normative. Now, of course, that is a controversial claim. I mean, everything in the book is really a controversial claim, I believe. But, you know, what can you do? Okay, so then after that, I, I uh, jumped off the standard track for someone with a PhD in philosophy, and uh, I decided that it was time for my wife, uh, biologically, she needed to have children. If you're going to have it, she, she needed to have children soon. So I just 
jumped off the academic bandwagon, and she and I worked part-time uh, as our two daughters uh, came along and grew up. And it was really, I mean, it was surprising to me that how long it was. But in the time, the time that I was working as, I, I say my main job was house husband. And I also say it's one, uh, one of the hardest jobs you'll ever do. But it is very rewarding. That's the only thing that can keep you motivated sometimes. Now, um, so there, uh, it was 13 years before I uh, got back into academia. And, uh, and, and I'll tell, I tell anybody who uh, is thinking about that it's a tough decision unless at the beginning you're confident that you will be happy with your decision, even if you never get back in academic philosophy. And that was my test, and, and it was definitely true. I wanted to be involved with my children. Uh, remember I told you that my father was in the military, and he was away. He worked late, and he was away. So he was the kind of father that we loved it when he was around, but he missed a large part of our childhood. I wanted to make sure I didn't do that. Okay, so then I got back involved uh, back into academic philosophy at the University of Washington, which is where I've been ever since, and then I just retired this January. And uh, one of the reasons that I retired was that uh, two and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, it turns out that I have a very, I had a very effective treatment for my lung cancer that basically inactivated it for a year and a half. Then things got difficult, but now. Starting in December, I started a new medication, and it's very effective at inactivating. It doesn't cure me, but it inactivates the cancer cells. And so I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> that is uh, wonderful to hear. Uh, and I also want to congratulate you on uh, your emeritus status. Um, that's fabulous. Um, uh, should we talk about the book? Sure. <laughs> Great. Um, uh, you know, you're. I, I really enjoyed reading this, even though it was. Um, it uh, required me to 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 recapture some things I I, I learned uh, uh, when I was a graduate student and you know taking you know uh, my epistemology courses, um, which was very welcome, by the way. So. Um, I like books when, uh, when as you as you read it, you learn something about what the title really means. Um, so I want to begin there because the title, "Learning from Our Mistakes," uh, turns out um, there's sort of a, a a kind of interesting ambiguity in the title, um, and one that I think that you um, draw on uh, different parts of the book. On the one hand. Your book is an indictment of the dominant tradition in Western epistemology. Um, that claiming you claim that a lot of uh, the, the dominant tradition in Western epistemology, going back perhaps at least to Aristotle, uh, has been a mistake. So that is a mistake that we are trying to learn from. Uh, on the other hand, though, the book proposes a model of rational believer uh, of the rational believer rather. Um, uh, that looks to people or looks to the kind of person who is a good learner or who can learn from his or her errors. 
Um, Kia, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, about those sort of two different senses uh, of learning from our mistakes. Yes, sure. Um, actually, uh, you might have put it this way, that the book offers a criticism of epistemology uh, in that it is very inadequate as a theory of being a good learner. And then I apply it. I mean, you say, okay. <laughs> and, and so and by telling, you know, obviously an abbreviated history of epistemology and uh, in that history of epistemology, I show people making mistakes and not learning from them, or at least very gradually. Ultimately, there is learning uh, even in epistemology. But it, it can be painfully slow, right? I mean, you know, we tell the story. The story goes by centuries, not by minutes or hours or days. Okay. Um, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to just uh, give you a few highlights from the history of epistemology. And uh, so we can see, you know, sort of like, it's like we can recap the history and it's like we get to see a slow motion sometimes you see they have slow motion uh <laughs> reconstructions of a car accident or something that's that's what i'm looking at. <laughs> train wreck yeah okay. uh, now uh and and i should also say one more thing about uh epistemology which goes all the way back to the beginning and uh remember before i was telling you about how gil Harmon got me off on the right track, I believe, in understand how to understand skeptical arguments. But another thing which continued to alarm me and depress me throughout my epistemological education was that you have lots and lots of people presenting theories, and usually the point of the theory is it corrects the mistake of one of their predecessors or something like that. But at the end of the day, if you ask a practical question, I'm going to talk about some practical questions later, but, you know, I, I now we have so many practical epistemological questions, but there have always been lots of them. And if you say, this is a theory of rational belief, does it help us at all to distinguish rational from irrational beliefs in, and then you go to whatever area where it's particularly pressing? And you could say, in science, you, I mean, now, of course, we have the, in addition to evolution, we have uh, the uh, deistic alternative that, uh, you know, creation, very different versions of creationism. And what, what really disturbed me was that so many of these different epistemologies could not usefully distinguish between the rational and the irrational. Um, and, that, and, and then there were two ways they did that. One way was to reach the result, all our beliefs are irrational, okay? That doesn't usefully distinguish. That is to say all beliefs, not just ours, all beliefs are irrational. And the other is, oh, to be, you know, really open and say, all beliefs are equally rational. Right, so the relativists, yeah, uh, that's the, the relativist flip side fact. is the relativists. That's right. right. And so you have the skeptics and you have the relativists and you also have the Platonists. And part of the story, historical story I tell is the oscillation between these uh, different 
kinds of views. And what I want to do is break out of that oscillation. But right now, I'm just at the beginning because, you know, our listeners, what do you mean, Talbot? Well, they, they can probably recognize that, yeah, uh, big themes are skepticism and relativism. And, we can, and they can also recognize, oh, you know, that's interesting because uh, I can say to you, uh, this, is, this is an application of, you know, the Harmon method. Suppose somebody gives you an epistemological theory and it says, oh, yeah, there's, uh, uh, let's do climate change. Is no, believe in climate change is no more uh, rational than not believing in climate change. Or to get a different kind of category, you look at, you, you go to a uh, Ku Klux Klan meeting and you look at the reasoning that they give to support all of their racist beliefs. And when you see that kind of reasoning, what you recognize is they are determined to find reasons that support the beliefs that they're drawn to just on the basis of gut feelings or something. And sometimes gut feelings can be very good indicators. I'm not, I'm not really actually objecting gut feelings, but I'm saying if the, obje- if the gut feelings are built on prejudice and sorts of things like that, they're going to lead you in a very uh, unproductive direction. But you can actually present arguments at the meeting that will be quite persuasive to other members of the Ku Klux Klan. And so um, uh, my, my concern is that, wow, I need a theory of rational beliefs. It's not like usually epistemology, oh, it's completely disconnected with the world. Don't worry, Talbot. When Hume gets to the conclusion that, you know, we have no rational beliefs at all except about, you know, whatever, you put in something in the little box. Don't worry. That's a sort of an austere notion of rationality, and it's not meant to apply to the real world. And I say, well, if it's not meant to apply to the real world, what's the point of doing it? But that's just me. Other people <laughs> like abstract studies. And I say to them, oh, good, please, I, I'm not... In other words, I'm never arguing that people shouldn't be able to study Hume and come up with even more interesting, elaborate, skeptical arguments. But I'm just saying, yeah, but don't we need to also pay attention to these really important real-world issues? I mean, look, I mean, we, we, we no longer, there was a time when I was an undergraduate in graduate school, it would be easy to say, oh, epistemology is an interesting subject, you know, we study it for its own uh, on, uh, for its own sake. But now we have alt truth and alt facts, and we have con- these conspiracy theories. And the conspiracy theories, I mean, look, there are a lot of people in the United States who believe that Joe Biden stole the election from Donald Trump. Now, I'm not, I'm not here say, I, uh, thinking, oh, I want a practical subject which tells me how to persuade them that they're mistaken. Once you understand the difference between rational and irrational belief, it's not so simple as that because those beliefs, and I'll say some more later, those beliefs are built up out of all sorts of other factors that are not rational factors, but they can make them very powerful and they can make uh, the person who has them pretty uh, resistant to rational considerations. But I just want to understand, because we have all these other epistemologies that say there is no difference. Either they're all equally rational or they're all equally irrational. 
So I'm going to do it very briefly. In the book, I have a long <laughs> story about, which is still only a very small part of the history of epistemology. And that story begins in the epistemological Garden of Eden, where someone discovers they can make a mistake. And the Western, in a Western epistemology, and it may well be true in other epistemology too, I'm just not an expert on that. This discovery produces first shame. Oh my gosh, I made a mistake. And it's like the Garden of Eden, where they all of a sudden for the first time felt they should cover up. And now, <laughs> they want to cover up that they've made a mistake. Right. But it also produces anxiety because have I made a mistake once? Oh no, maybe I'm doing more than one or maybe I'll do some more in the future. So <laughs> then I say, okay, epistemologist, come to me and give me a method that I never have to feel this shame and this anxiety. And epistemology says, sure, we'll do it. And I call it the proof paradigm. And uh, the proof paradigm is sort of what holds together a lot of disparate assumptions and so on that get worked out in the history of epistemology. Right. And so, and yeah. Yeah, please. I was going to say, and the proof paradigm winds up being the, uh, the, the glue that sticks together. <laughs> Even, um, traditional epistemological um, viewpoints that uh, we're, um, we philosophers are trained to see as the, the, the contending opposite, you know, they, the, the opponents, but they wind up being opponents precisely because they share uh, a certain overlap of these, um, uh, um, of these presuppositions that you gather together uh, in this paradigm. Is that right? That's right. Like human con classic, you know, opposite poles. But when you read my chapter two, you see, no, the, the, the proof paradigm, we're going to, you know, it has five presuppositions that have done a lot of damage and they're going to share almost all of them. Um, uh, let's, let's talk about Hume just a little bit because Hume is so famous for his skeptical arguments. And when I, when I, it turns out, you know, that I'm going to offer provisionally nine principles of rationality. Some of them I call principles of irrationality. And it's always epistemic rationality and epistemic irrationality. Okay, so uh, when I uh, identify the principles of epistemic irrationality, I say, well, there are two categories of, uh, and then I have to try to find neutral language. They could be uh, points of view or something like that. And, and epistemological views in this case, and one is that if you understand the view, it, um, it can't be true. The simplest way is, uh, uh, unless the view, the view has a non-standard logic, you know, it violates logic. But since I'm always open to non-standard logic, I don't take logic as the test of whether a view makes sense. And then the second one is if it's self-undermining. And a view is self-undermining if it implies that it's not rational to believe it. <laughs> now, you might think, okay, yeah, but if, if epistemologists couldn't rule out those kinds of mistakes, nobody would ever read them because it's so ridiculous. And so I, I'm just, and, I'm, and, and the thing is, I'm going to focus on Hume because uh, he is still so influential. Uh, when Bourget 
and uh, Christensen did a survey in which they asked philosophers, basically, who is your favorite dead philosopher? Number one on the list was Hume. And when they asked them, uh, philosophers of science, do you endorse a Humean or a non-Humean view of laws? 45.9% endorsed a Humean view of laws. Now, but when we look at Hume, what we find is multiple examples, not just of uh, self-defeating and self-undermining parts of his view, but they're uh, they build on each other. And now what I'm going to do, and this is what I do, I want to blow things up that people have taken for granted. And of course, once I blow them up, there's always a question, well, how do we reconstruct it? And I want, what I want to do is encourage people to try to reconstruct it, do it their own way. But here's one that, you know, I've taken courses on Hume. I've read books on Hume. No one has ever even mentioned, and it's a clear case of the view being self-undermining. Everybody who takes Hume, uh, studies Hume, gets and learns, oh, and they get to see, he has an argument that induction can't be rational because it's circular, it depends on a, the uniformity of nature in order to make, you know, to derive the uniformity of nature. Uh, and so that makes all of induction irrational. And he goes on also, all probably, not just beliefs, but even uh, probability assignments to propositions, if they're uh, less than one or greater than zero, they're irrational. And so, for example, we, uh, we very quickly, you know, pick up with an example, uh, like, uh, let, I like to use me in these examples, uh, so that, you know, nobody gets their hurt feelings hurt. Um, I'm, I'm a student of Hume and I'm really impressed with his argument that, uh, basically we can't have any rational beliefs about the future. And so I, uh, I'm going to explain it to you, Bob. Here's how it works. I mean, you, for example, you could go around and you could see a lot of black crows. And then at some point, you might infer all crows are black. That's pretty extreme, but still, that's something that uh, I used to believe before I read Hume. Then, or more modest, that, that, that the next crow that I observe will be black or more modest it's highly probable that the next crow that I observe will be black. Okay? But that's all stuff about the future. And then I say, okay, uh, you know, uh, somebody says, well, why do you believe all that? And I say, well, I'm going to tell you a very, very brief thing about Hume's epistemology. Hume says that we're, uh, all of our direct ideas originate in impressions, you know, like the impression of right now, uh, you can hear my voice and I can uh, look around and see furniture and so on. Well, of course, the impressions aren't described that way. They're all inside me, all ideas. And, and that's, a, that's a, one of the absolutely key claims that almost, almost most, I would say, of Hume's skeptical arguments include that as part of their argument. So then we just say, you know, we have Hume. Hume just walked in the door very conveniently. I say, is it possible to rationally believe that all ideas 
originate in impressions. Well, remember, if I believe that, it's just like all crows are black. It's not only the belief that in the past all ideas have originated from impressions. It's the belief that they all will in the future, too. That it's exactly parallel. The argument for, you know, that it can't be rational to believe all crows are black or even that the next crow will be black or even that it's very probable the next crow will be black. They apply to this absolutely fundamental you know, part of Hume's view. So why doesn't he just say, oh, we can't believe anything about the future, even my own epistemological theory? Can't rationally, of course, we can do it. And what, what's really interesting to me is this is a clear case of his own view being self-undermining because his argument depends on, and it's not, it's not a premise in his view because he argues for it too, but an intermediate conclusion that all ideas originate in impression. And the conclusion of his argument implies that we can't rationally believe that. Right. Wow. Can I ask a quick question again about Hume? Um, It always occurred to me, again, I'm not a historian and I'm not a scholar of any of this stuff, but it always occurred to me that it was very difficult um, to make good sense of the alleged connection between impressions and ideas without talking about impressions being the cause of ideas in some non-Humean sense of causation, right? (laughs) What sense is that? I mean, here we go. You're ready to start me on another one now, which is this. Uh, I want to use this, first of all, to illustrate uh, a self-defeating view. Hume is, we now know, is going to argue on the basis of, of, let's call it the origination of ideas thesis. He's going to argue on that, based on that thesis, uh, that we can't have an idea of cause. And now, when we ask him, you know, here he is, Hume, what is it, what's the idea that we can't have? The idea of cause, they'll give you other, you know, a list of other power, so on and so on. But how can you even say that unless we have an idea of cause? And so if you, if you, I mean, and, and by the way, lots of philosophers, this one, at least people were aware of, lots of philosophers have tried to get around this. And so I don't mean this to be safe, although I think the, the attempts to get around it fail, but obviously we don't have time to do that. But here, I'm just looking at the guy who writes this and at least at first glance without him, since he never tried to get around it, it's self-refuting. That's the, makes the view self-refuting. And for example, you can't say, oh, what he's doing is you have to understand what he's saying as his substitute for cause. It's a claim about his substitute for cause. But we can have the idea of his substitute for cause, so his argument doesn't affect that at all and rationally have it. Okay, see, so when you go through the history of philosophy, epistemology in this case, wow. Your question is, why are all these people, and by the way, you know, Bob, you know, you've read the book, you and I could have a discussion for two hours easily of all these examples of these really famous philosophers making self-refuting or self-undermining arguments. I mean, for example, take the pragmatists. There is no truth. I say, say, there is no truth. You know, we know. Uh, Or 
we don't need a concept. Or you could have a concept of truth, but we don't need it. Because, I mean, the first question that occurs to you, to that person who says that, you know, is that true? Is that so? Is what you yeah. just said true? <laughs> and it's, it gets even worse than that because they don't just go around saying it. Maybe some Zen Buddhists just go around. There is no truth, you know. But these philosophers all give arguments for the position that there is no truth or that uh, we have no need for truth. And so then you ask them, okay, well, what are the starting points of your argument? Are they true? Well, they may not be you know, literally true, but are they true enough? That's a term I get from Catherine Elgin and Elijah uh, Milgram. Sorry, I was, I was in the other part of my brain over there with the pragmatist. Okay, now. Uh, and true enough know, just seems to be parasitic on the idea of it being true full stop. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah. so what are they doing? Well, you know, once you see that, you're on a, you're really, it's like a field day. You can have a field day because then you can say, well, think of all the people who have argued for behaviorism and go back and find <laughs> the starting points of the argument. Was right. it rational to believe them? I mean, just, just to believe them at all blows up the argument. Okay. So uh, ultimately then, I find that, wow, there are lots of problems. Why? Why do these philosophers end up, you know, they have lots of actually interesting and important things to say, but when they try to give us a theory, it can't hold together. It blows up. Well, that takes us on to the question of what is it that is causing philosophy, epistemology anyway in this case, to go down these dead ends. And that's the proof paradigm. Yes, that's the proof paradigm. You have to. So, can you tell us a little bit? I mean, so we've got you. You, you articulate the paradigm in terms of these five presuppositions. Um, uh, can we, um, you know, can we get the nutshell version of that? Because I want to make sure that the uh, that that the, the positive story, the alternative, right, uh, 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 that that we get to discuss uh, uh, that in in, in uh, uh, fully. So, how does the proof paradigm work? It understands, or it's the presupposition, uh, or various elements of the presupposition that knowledge is to be understood on the model of a mathematical or strictly deductive proof. Is that right? Yeah. It's uh, Aristotle solves the problem, you know, quote unquote solves that I was telling you about in the epistemological garden of Eden, because uh, you, you, to dissolve that problem, he says, look at mathematical proof. You know, he doesn't even have to say it. That's what everybody's looking at. Parmenides, Socrates, they're all looking at it. And uh, then what we're going to do is we're going to make everything like that. And so then, you know, all these theories, all these theories, you know, it's like you can trace it through epistemology. Uh, the ones that accept all of the, that accept the proof paradigm, like Kant, uh, you just say, okay, I need uh, infallibility is one thing that's important. So I need to have an infallible starting points and infallible transformation rules, right? You know, and that's Aristotle's syllogistic rules. 
And those syllogistic rules transcend all of the other philosophical debates that take place. Everybody accepts those until Frege, you know, in the 19th century. And so, uh, so the first presupposition is that rational belief has to be infallible. And uh, most people today have given that up. So what we're going to do is we have presuppositions. But what I want to draw attention to is even when people give up presuppositions uh, of the proof paradigm, still the influence, their influence is still there. And the way it then influences what they substitute. Now, I'll give some examples of that. Too. Okay, well, uh, the next one is deductivism. And that's the presumption that the rules of deductive logic are at least some of the rules of rational reasoning. Can add on. Notice that once you have that so centrally identified as rationality, then even the names of the other kind of reasons, deduction, induction, abduction, cries out, yes, you know, that's what yeah. reasoning <laughs> is. It has it fits right. this model. Okay. Right. But then when you have these other kinds of reasoning, well, first of all, maybe I'll do it with deduction because the presumption it's, it's the, a, a very important part of this production, so presumption is going to be an extension of it, which is that all reasoning is inferential. So we have to say what an inference is. Uh, as I use the term, uh, inferences are, you might say, belief transitions or something that have two properties. I mean, they definitely can have more too, but they must have these two. One, it's unidirectional. So that means rational support is in one direction from the starting points, the premises, to the conclusion. That's the way rationality, you know, rational support works. And the second one is it's monotonic. In inference, the reasoning only adds beliefs, never subtracts them. And so in all these kinds of reasoning, they don't remember correcting your mistakes is always in the back of your mind is going on. Inferences cannot correct mistakes because all they can do is add beliefs. Okay, and once we have deductive inferences, then the next uh, uh, of the presuppositions is that all reasoning is inferential. And there you have induction, abduction. Uh, the next presupposition is uh, first premises, I call it first premises. This is the presumption that all reasoning begins from premises that do not depend on other beliefs for their rational support. And so that ties in with what happens if that, that is violated? Well, then you have, uh, we no longer have unidirectionality in reasoning. And so you have the danger of, wow, we could end up with circular reasoning. Or infinite regresses. Or infinite regresses, yeah. It's hard, it's hard right. for me to do an infinite regress. Have you ever done one? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I have a colleague who is a who is a stalwart infinitist about <laughs> epistemic justification. Yeah, and that's he's why, very that's why, very interesting. I, that's why I like to bring it down to the real world enough. Is it is it something that we could actually achieve having a rational belief? It, it right. might be. It might be. You see, once you have to reconcile yourself to all these skeptical results, it might be that for your colleague, it's enough that it's possible some being 
could have rationally. <laughs> and so, you know, it's not so bad. We're imperfect beings as we know anyway. Okay. Okay. And so the, and the first premises, the, the, uh, again, is actually uh, an implication of that all reasoning is inferential. But I give it a separate name because it's, it is independent of it. It doesn't, uh, it, that's right, it, 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 you can't infer inferentialism from first premises. And it captures a really important idea, which, as we know, in epistemology, leads to, you know, big classifications like foundationalism, coherentism, and all that. And now, you know, well, I, what I'm saying is that we have to blow up all of those presuppositions. But there's one more presupposition first, and that's access internalism. And access internalism is the presupposition that whether or not an agent's belief that P is rational depends only on factors to which the agent has access on reflection. Now, just to you know, give a hint as to why it is we're going to have to give up all these premises, is that, uh, all these presuppositions, I mean, is that what we're going to find out is, and we may already know, reasoning is an equilibrium process. And it's holistic, not because every belief is involved in every step of reasoning or anything like that, but because in theory they could be, depending on what the other beliefs are. And so that's why you're always in a situation of saying, well, given where I am now, what does it make the most sense to believe? And if you, you know, look at the history of inquiry in any area, you see lots of mistakes. So you figure, okay, it's got to be an equilibrium process that uh, is compatible with making mistakes. And indeed, the one of the main processes that I focus on is an equilibrium process that works on degrees of belief. And all, all I want to say about degrees of belief right now is, you know, our degrees of confidence. I say degrees of confidence, actually. I don't want to, to assume, as a matter of fact, I'm going to deny that they satisfy the probability axioms. But, you know, still, they, they, they resemble probabilities in many ways. Uh, and so the, an equilibrium process on degrees of confidence uh, if it's equilibrium, then when you make a step of reasoning, it can, it can in, increase your beliefs, it can decrease your beliefs or your degrees of confidence, and, uh, and it's, it's not unidirectional because the relations of support are mutual. Okay, so people are familiar with the idea of an equilibrium process, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of show how even people are familiar with it, even maybe believe it in some way, can still be uh, held hostage by the proof paradigm, the presuppositions of the proof paradigm. And so, and one way that we are held hostage is uh, the criticism, uh, if it's just assumed that in, a, in philosophy, that circular reasoning is fallacious. And there is a fallacy of circular reasoning. Now, there, there are lots of examples of this, and I have an article on uh, called Is Epistemic Circularity a Fallacy, in which I make the case that circularity or epistemic circularity is not a fallacy. But here's just a quick thing to note. If we have an equilibrium model, 
where relations of support are mutual, if reasoning fits that model, then the charge of circularity doesn't even can't even be made in the model because the charge of circularity requires there to be a direction, a single direction of rational support. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think there are lots of arguments that are called circular that are fallacious. I just think that the mistake is not that they're circular. The mistake is something else. And one way to see this is to say, oh, well, but look, I can define circularity and we can all agree they're all fallacious. So then Professor Talbot says, well, there's something else to the problem. But still, circularity is a really useful category because they're all fallacious. And so that's why I wrote about epistemic circularity, because I think there's a really clear case that shows a deep problem with this. And the clear case is, okay, what about your uh, uh, beliefs about the reliability of your own cognitive faculties? And we can say, oh, well, you know, you asked me, why is your, what, why do you think that your memory is reliable? And I give you all examples of memories that I think are reliable. And, and you say, oh, that's absolutely, I mean, there are a lot of philosophers who say that's absolutely circular. It's uh, 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 malignant epistemic circularity, and, you know, defeats rationality, prevents you from being rational. Okay, so here, here I am, and I'm saying, but wait a minute, you know, I'm going down to the world again. I'm saying, but notice, I gave you reasons for thinking my memory is reliable. Don't you agree that it's reliable? And don't you agree that those are good examples of, and you say, yeah, yeah, I can agree from the outside, but you're not entitled to do that. And I say, okay, okay, well, uh, I, I'm thinking now here of Bergman. A lot of people say, but you know, with epistemic circularity, I do want to allow. You can use your memory to support your belief that your memory is reliable. The problem comes in is when the circularity is malignant. And so it's malignant when you have reason to doubt the reliability of, you know, whatever fa faculty you're using. So I say, let's continue the example. This is a true story, people. When I was young, I had a really, really reliable memory. I didn't even have a date book or a calendar or anything. I just remembered it all. And then early on, it was really in my 20s, I first started to notice there was some decline. But I had a really good memory in my 30s, 20s, 30s. But then, you know, I started, I got into my 50s and I started to notice, no, it is declined. I see, I want to say, and then it's got, it's gotten really bad. Okay. <laughs> now, I claim that it's rash, that whole story, I have a rational belief at every stage in the story. But notice, the story is a story of me getting evidence that my memory is not reliable. So on, it seems, but it must be epistemically circular for you to use that evidence that your memory is not reliable to then rely on memories to conclude that it is not right. reliable. Right. right, right. How many people, right. I mean, and, you know, it's a big majority in philosophy who would agree with Bergman on uh, epistemic circularity when it's malignant, but they are perfectly good at telling when their memory is declining. And since we all get older over time, most people get this experience. And it would be a huge <laughs> mistake if I treated my memory the way I did when I was in my 20s. Right, right. Right? 
Okay, so all I'm saying is these are a really interesting phenomenon, and there's a huge literature on why it's irrational. Now, of course, right. they're not looking exactly at this example, but they're calling it malignant epistemic circularity. And I'm saying right. we need a theory that can explain why it is rational, since it clearly is. Okay, another, <laughs> so, Bill, another okay. okay, go ahead. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. How many times have you heard someone say, one person's modus ponens is another person's modus tollens? Now, <laughs> they say that when there's... Since sellers, yeah. What? Yeah, okay. I said since, since sellers, oh, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. How many of you were alive before sellers? Okay, so here we go now. Um, if you had been, you should have said it. Now, here we go, and... I'm saying they're always trying to say how evidence gets can get interpreted in different ways, but they're usually referring to a kind of reasoning where somebody starts off believing that P and they end up believing that not P. That's mistake correcting. But all I want you to see is, since it's mistake correcting, it can't be modus ponens and it can't be modus tollens. Those are both deductive inferences. So even when it comes to trying to describe mistake-correcting reasoning that involves giving up beliefs, the terms that they use are inferences. So they can't be right. Okay, I could go on and (laughs) on, but I'm just showing, I'm trying to show you how powerful the influence of proof paradigm is. So that's wonderful. So Bill, the, you know, one of the, one of the features of the book is that it is a all, you know, full on assault <laughs> uh, of the proof paradigm. Um, and, you know, readers who pick up the book are going to, you know, are going to see, you know, example after example after example. But um, I want to make sure that, that, that we give voice to the, the positive alternatives. So um, can you tell us a bit uh, uh, in, in our, uh, remaining time. Can you tell us a bit about the core insight, uh, for the, for the positive, uh, uh, program, which is that we should start thinking of epistemology, uh, on the model of Sherlock Holmes rather than Euclid. Can you tell us what would a Sherlock Holmesian epistemology or an, an epistemological alternative that took that advice to heart? What would that look like? Okay. Well, first of all, I want to get there by this. By the time we get to that question in the book, we have seen lots and lots of examples which I want to take as clues. So, for example, you know, I've given you the examples from Hume. You know, all, each one of them, they're clues that the proof paradigm is mistaken, the presumptions are mistaken. And so then what we want to do is we want to say, wow, let's stop back. How should we interpret these clues? Well, we have, we have to search for them. For, but once we have a, a lot of useful clues, then uh, what we want to do first, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, here's how epistemology could have gone if we go back to the epistemological Garden of Eden and say, what? how should we respond? How would we have responded when we discovered we could make a mistake? Because now we're talking about the history of epistemology and we've discovered it, it seems to have made lots of mistakes. What should we do? Well, in the epistemological garden, even what I imagine is instead of when the first person makes a mistake, 
instead of feeling shame and anxiety, what if they had felt wonder? That's sort of amazing. How? That's sort of amazing. And then curiosity. How can we do it? How can we do it? And if they had asked those questions, they never would have pursued the proof paradigm because the proof paradigm would have been a non-starter. And so then what they would have done is they would have started epistemology on a different path. And the path would be to think seriously about how it is that we can have experiences that can then make beliefs in wholes, groups, not individual beliefs, but groups of beliefs, which I call scenarios. And experience itself is the test of those beliefs. It's not propositions about experience, which immediately are importing presuppositions from the proof paradigm. Oh, yeah, all rational connections have to be uh, between or among propositions. How many times have you heard people say that? Well, <laughs> in the proof paradigm, they are. <laughs> right. And all so, right. but now, no, we can talk about scenarios. I talk about the time I walked into my office uh, thinking that my copy of Hume's treatise was on my desk, and I looked over at my desk and I didn't see it. Where is it? Of course, that's the experience of I had a mistaken assumption. And we'll then go on and we'll look and see how these scenarios, by the way, these scenarios have lots of produced expectations for experience. Just a second. I'm sorry, there's, I don't know if that's, I'm going to just stop this right now. Okay. Um, and when I walked across the living room to get to my study and walk to my study, I had lots of beliefs whose expectations for experience were satisfied. You know, the walls didn't collapse. The floor didn't, I didn't fall through the floor. The ceiling didn't <laughs> fall on me. All sorts. The book wasn't floating. I mean, yeah, yeah right. exactly. So in order, in order to, uh, even have an epistemological inquiry, we have to have lots of scenarios that are approximately true, true enough, right? And uh, and then within that, we have some scenarios that we are that we are assigning hydrocarbonus to, and our experience does not fit their expectations for experience. And it's actually having the experience whether it fits the expectations. Okay, and so now we say, oh, okay. Well, then, how is it that we're going to reconstruct an adequate uh, theory of, you know, the world? And there, what we're going to do is, I'm going to look, you know, I'm going to think, okay, where could my book be? And I'm not going to consider all possible places that a Martian might have come and taken it and flown away with it. You know, I'm going to consider other scenarios that have been made more, much more plausible now by the experience that I've had. Not, by the way, by saying, oh, to myself, oh, my expectations for experience were not satisfied. Let me find a plausible scenario on which they would have been satisfied. Now, that's all at an unconscious level. We have no idea uh, of what's going on in this rational process. But what happens is hypotheses are considered uh, and then uh, test it. Like, for example, oh, I think I left it in my briefcase. So I go over and look at my briefcase. No, it's not there either. Okay. So, and then ultimately 
I find it, oh, it was underneath this pile of papers. Okay. And then equilibrium is restored. And the crucial thing to see is that disequilibrium is not irrational. Disequilibrium is our message that we need to make a revision. And then we make the revision and equilibrium is restored. What are the principles of equilibrium? We have very little idea of what they are. They are very complex because they work on you know, sets of beliefs, not individually. And that means that, again, to just give you a contrast, the most influential, I think, uh, theory of this process that I'm talking about is a theory in terms of defeaters. And defeaters, to me, are the minimum revision that you could make to an inferential theory in order to get some mistake-correcting reasoning into it. You know, there are inferences and there are anti-inferences. Where, you know, but now, no, it's a, it's a much deeper and uh, more mysterious process that we have to address. In the book, I talk about defeaters, and I try to show that defeaters can be very useful for classifying certain kinds of reasoning, but they, they don't explain it. And then let me just say one more thing here, so you can see, although, you know, people might think, yeah, but Talbot, you know, we're so beyond all those presuppositions of the proof paradigm, you're just beating a dead horse. Let me consider briefly what I take to be the most influential uh, theory or kind of theory or model in uh, current epistemology, which is Bayesianism. And Bayesianism is a great improvement over its predecessors because it allows for partial degrees of belief, you know. But let's just look at the presuppositions. First of all, infallibilism. Well, of course, we're not infallible about all our rational beliefs, but actually Bayesianism assigns, has to assign probability of one to all instances of our logical principles, and therefore, it actually requires infallibilism uh, uh, about itself, and it also requires, I mean, you know, a kind of logical omniscience, right? That actually, you know, we satisfy the probabilistic version of uh, uh, being able to infer all the logical consequences of our beliefs. And that's, be that's because the Bayesian theory makes our rational beliefs uh, uh, determined by the laws of probability and a priori probability assignment. The laws of probability have logic built into them. And then we have, okay, uh, so that I'm just going down the list. So that's uh, the laws of deduction are applied to the probability laws and the uh, a priori probabilities. So the reasoning in Bayesianism is all deductive inference. Are you kidding me? It is. Okay. And then, so that means that number three, we can check off because that's inferentialism. Yeah, all reasoning is inferential. And then we go to the next one, which is first premises. And the first premises, if we had more time, we could talk about all the problems that Bayesianism gets into by having the presumption of there being a priori probabilities. And even the subjective Bayesians really say, say anything goes, you can have whatever you want for your a priori probabilities. Uh, and, uh, but that only shows just how detached their whole theory is from any useful uh, uh, epistemological purpose. 
and then uh, first person access. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you're assigning the probability. Yeah, right? I mean, you have to have first person <laughs> access to a heck of a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm. Uh, uh, so, so here it is. Contemporary. We're now doing contemporary epistemology, and I think the most popular view saves it actually saves three of the presuppositions and actually you know fits in I, the fourth would be first person uh, access it's really as close as you can get to that one too okay so so now of course the people who are bayesians you know please please don't think i've given you a single argument against your position yet <laughs> but what I, i'm not now arguing against it and as a matter of fact the book uh, argument doesn't fit what I do in the book, and it's a part of the reason of thinking. I, you know, reasoning is not inferences. Right. What I try to do actually is just get you to think about problems, clues. Try to provide you with some clues to think about. And at the end of the day, you may decide, well, Bayesianism makes more sense to me than the alternatives. That's right. Go for it. If, if that's what you believe in, and, and you can make some contribution to epistemology that I won't make because I'm on another horse. <laughs> um, you've been very generous with your time. I, I wanted to make sure though, just as a, um, uh, to, to, to wind things down. Um, so the book begins with a, um, with a, a, an imagined dialogue with a, uh, with an alien who uh, comes down and, and says to you, uh, you know, you've got earthlings have these really, you know, these really compromised epistemologies that are at the root of all of their problems. Um, and the, the book tries to show that, um, uh, the root of all of those compromised epistemologies is the proof paradigm. Can you tell us a little bit, just maybe even speculatively, um, in the last, you know, in the remaining few minutes, uh, if if that alien were to come down and ask you how your um, epistemology uh, ep epistemic alternative would work, can you tell us a little bit about how the giving up of the proof paradigm might help? Uh, um, uh, uh, sort of counteract our dispositions towards conspiracy thinking and various relativisms and uh, unhealthy skepticisms? Okay, that's a big one, isn't it? <laughs> 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 no, no, okay. Here, so all, all I can do is sort of wave at it, but it's really important, it's so important to me that and, yeah. and it goes, connects right up with what I was just talking about. I'm still interested in can epistemology help us to understand what's irrational about these alt-truth, alt-fact kinds of epistemologies uh, 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 in the real world now. I'm not worried about epistemology. Or look on social media at all the conspiracy theories. Now, I'm not going to say that epistemology can solve all the problems, but I am going to say this. It makes a big difference if you have an epistemology that can at least enable us to understand what's irrational about them. If your epistemology, like, look, subjective Bayesianism, it's so easy that anybody who understands subjective Bayesianism could easily define alternative priors on which it would never be rational for, say, a 
Holocaust denier to, de- to ever accept the Holocaust existed. You don't, I don't care what evidence, and you can see why, because that person is going to believe that the presentation of the evidence itself is part of the conspiracy. It set right. me up. Right. Okay. So now I say, okay, but what about con- uh, conspiracy theories? Well, f- it's the the first conspiracy theory, and to me still the most powerful one, is Descartes' theory. Of the, <laughs> the evil, evil genius, yeah. Right. And you sit there and you say, what if there were an evil demon? They could do this to me. And, you know, it takes a while, but finally it hits the popular culture with the Matrix. They are doing it to yeah. us. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, so... A question is, how can we in our current situation uh, distinguish between the rationality of our ordinary beliefs? I, t- I talked about some earlier, you know, that I, right now I believe I'm hearing your voice when you speak, mm-hmm. and I believe I'm looking at furniture and so on. And the rationality, and, and I think it would be irrational to believe the evil demon experiment, uh, <laughs> the evil demon uh, alternative that well I say okay Descartes started the ball rolling hundreds of years ago but surely somebody since then has given a sort of definitive statement of why the believing the evil demon hypothesis is irrational and so we could at least you know looking now at the conspiracy theories on social media we could at least understand why they're irrational. As a matter of fact, one proposal I make is, I think we should teach in high school some epistemology. Yeah. <laughs> and what I would do is have, have the students, their assignment would be, take some generally accepted event and come up with a conspiracy theory that will fit all the evidence. You know, And it's easy. That's the thing is it's easy. And so then they see, oh, you know, that helps to, immunize people against these conspiracy theories on the web, because then you can say, oh, notice that another really strong influence in favor of these theories is, well, in, in my group, everybody believes them. But then you can see, okay, just trace it a little bit. You can have me in the class even. You start up several different websites that just cite each other. Nothing easier. Right? And so what you can see is, if there were, there isn't now. If I teach, you know, it's like all these, you know, great philosophers. If I tell the students what they believed, they would have a nervous <laughs> breakdown. Socrates, Socrates believes he's superior to all the other members in Athens because while they <laughs> think they know something, I neither know nor think I know. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And that's, so that's, it's like, it's just a disconnect between epistemology, not all epistemology, but you see, I, in, in what I have to do is I have to make the case that this is not some small fluke or something. This is, can be found even in subjective Bayesians, these presuppositions. And so then, uh, and then we have, and I've just, I will encourage people read chapter seven, chapter seven is where I take on a lot of these things and particularly beliefs based on prejudice. 
and I try to provide an explanation. Everything I do in the book, you know, is subject to revision. So it's not, it's not the final word. But I think it's a productive direction to go in to understand a lot of irrational belief. That, that, by the way, I give an example in the book, the example of Beauregard, an example of someone who satisfies all of the, you know, tenets of your favorite epistemological theory. And he's a complete and utter racist. And his evidence, he forgets evidence that goes against his views. And he remembers and shares evidence that supports his views with his other friends who do the same with him. Right. Right. Okay. Well, anyway. Bill, it's it's been really great um, talking about your book, uh, which I learned a lot from, <laughs> um, and uh, am, have have been recommending uh, uh, to uh, to my epistemology colleagues. Um, and I want to thank you for joining me uh, uh, to talk about your book on new books in philosophy. It's been really great to talk to you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, dare I tell the listeners that it was a, not a sure thing that we were able to actually make the connection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad it worked out. Um, but while we're talking about the listeners, I want to thank them. Um, thank you listeners for joining us for this discussion. I've been talking, uh, I've been having a wonderful time talking to uh, William Talbot. Uh, and uh, Bill and I have been talking about uh, his new book, which I will remind you, listener, is titled Learning from Our Mistakes, Epistemology for the Real World. Uh, it's just been published by Oxford University Press, and I highly recommend it. Thanks for listening to New Books in Philosophy, folks. Bye for now.